players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Show and Tell, Palace Jailer, Rashad and Cutpurse, and many others, battling head-to-head in brutal combat. They all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is sponsored by Cardboard Live and TheEpicStorm.com. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode four of the Eternal Glory podcast. My name is Anurag Das, and I'm joined again this week with Bryant and uh, Wilson. Bryant, how are you guys doing? Wilson, how are you guys doing? Well, I am great, Anurag. How are you? I'm doing good, too. I'm doing good. It's been a long week. Uh, There's been a lot of magic being played. This weekend is uh, kind of intimidating me, honestly. It's the weekend of the Grand Prix. Uh been playing a lot of magic a speaking lot of, of which i haven't really got to play much online i've been preparing for a big modern event that was local uh but i know that you've been playing how's the london mulligan going yeah the london mulligan was implemented this wednesday i think on the 10th or something like that after downtime on moto it's been interesting as soon as it uh as soon as they turn you know went live i you know got a black red reanimator list and got the cards for it started playing and i was like yeah let's see how busted it really is right because i think there's just like this perpetual fear that like the turn zero combo decks are going to pop off and crush everyone i did see that you had a couple of uh mold of four wins on turn one yeah yeah so it's pretty disgusting um i what my my finding for black red was mostly that the game one hands are just like you can mulligan pretty deep and still get there because your opponents don't have that much interaction um, but in the post board games, when everyone's boarding in like their ley lines and their surgicals and their, you know, all their removals, sorry, you know, their relevant answers, um, I just found that it wasn't as consistent. And so you don't get to mulligan as aggressively. You have to play like normal post board games. Um, so that's, I don't know, that's one finding. And then from the perspective of miracles, I think it's pretty much been the same, except I get to bottom some unwanted terminuses on the termini, on the mulligans. So that's kind of cool. Um, but yeah, moving on. So I guess the first order of business, I want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Tom Hep, AKA Negator 77 and James beach for your donations to the podcast. Uh, we definitely do appreciate it and we will use it to, you know, just up the production quality of future podcasts. That's awesome for everyone else who is interested in donating. Feel free to check out our website. There's a donation button somewhere on the footer of the website or so. Yeah. Thank you guys a lot. We, we do appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks guys. I think let's dive right in. Give me a life update. I heard, Bryant, you played in a tournament recently and you crushed this tournament. Wilson and I both flew from Syracuse, New York to Boston last weekend to play in the Leaving a Legacy 3.5K, and I was lucky enough to top four with TES. Uh, I have a report up on theepicstorm.com, and then this past weekend, I took second in a modern 2K with Death Shadow with main deck Surgical Extractions. Pretty good at killing those phoenixes. So you've had a pretty good past few weeks then, huh? Yeah, slightly above average, I'd say. 
Nice. <laughs> not not par for the course. Uh, that's that's cute. That's awesome though. Yeah, congratulations. That's that's pretty cool. Nice. Um, what else was in the top eight of the? What, what were your top eight matches in the in the, the legacy portion? I faced Blue White Delver in top eight, and I won a game where I thought I was probably about five percent to win. It was a pretty crazy game. I was dead on board, and I had to resolve an ad nauseum from five when my opponent had Flusterstorm Stifle in their hand, and I don't know. It was just nuts. And then I lost in top four to Grixis Phoenix, which ultimately lost to Sneak and Show in the finals. Okay. That's pretty absurd, dude. An ad nauseum from Five Life. Man, I remember we played once one of our matches. Uh, okay, begrudgingly, this is the match you won. But in this game, I remember you ad nauseum from 20 and you hit like eight two drops in a row. And then um, I think that was like, it's it's pretty cool how ad nauseum is like swings in both directions. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see. So moving on, I guess, uh, we'll do the, the usual recap from the last episode. We got a couple comments from episode three. Uh, let's see. Blur Yo Face says, is it going to be a running joke that Jerry is invited on the podcast and doesn't show up for some reason? Um... No, 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 it's not a running joke at all. I mean, I mean, J- J- Jerry is, is supposed to be on every episode. In fact, we didn't even bother mentioning it this time because, quite frankly, it's just unprofessional at this point. I, I didn't want to say anything, but since you brought it up, Blur Your Face, I'm going to put it out there. No, no, it is not a joke. And, in fact, this is the fourth time that Jerry has, has bailed. Um, Jerry? Jerry, come on, man. Come on. Um, but, yeah. And then I think, let's see, Josh Bingaman, uh, and in the comments here, it says the man behind Tinfins. Wait, Brian, what do you mean by that? Josh Binghamton is, or Binghamton, Bingaman is the creator of Tinfins. Actually? Like Ice Station Zebra, or? Uh, I'm not sure what his handle is, but he's the guy behind Tinfins. Okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so Josh is saying, catching up on podcasts and just finished listening to all three of yours with Anurag and Wilson. Great format for the cast. The three of you have really great chemistry. Smiley face emoji. Thanks for putting out great content. Josh? That that's that's really sweet. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah, Josh is a great guy. Yeah, what I like to do is just not say anything, and I think that helps add to the chemistry of the cast. You, you, <laughs> you know those like awkward silences that you get sometimes, and it's just like, like no, no, actually, that's that's I want to point that out. Um, you know, like when you have those conversations and you have those awkward silences, right? And then you can still like resume and pick up, and then you're not like doting on how awkward that was, and like you can move on from topic to topic, and like. Even if I said right now Wilson sucks, you know he's got a big smile on his face. He's happy about that. So that kind of that kind of chemistry, you know what I mean? Um, well, but, Wilson but he, just knows that it's true. Uh, it's not true. Come on, we all we all know. You and I know it's not true, regardless of what Wilson thinks. So the next comment that I included was mostly for a milestone. We received our first website contact submission from F Seven Eleven. Uh, his name is Eric, and he asked if we could do an extra long episode that releases on 419, the eve of GP Niagara Falls. See you there. So uh, it's probably not going to be extra long, but we're doing an episode that will release on that date. It's currently happening right now. We just wanted to say, Eric, thank you for listening. We greatly appreciate it. Yo, for real though, actually, I, w- I just finished streaming today, the Sunday Challenge, and F711, like, wrote multiple times. It was like, hey, you guys going to record the podcast this week for Niagara Falls? Hey, you guys, could you make it exactly 150 minutes long? Uh, cough, cough. Is that probably the length of his commute or something like that? So, yeah, uh, glad glad for the submission. Thanks for listening. I Like, look, the three of us, like, mentioned it earlier. We 
really do appreciate all the support and things like that. And that being said, I, I, I do want to get into this conversation about the Grand Prix because, I mean, it being this week itself, um, I feel like there's a lot going on that we should talk about. Bryant has this three-page show notes thing that he's prepared. Um, let's dive in. Wait, no, no, there's one more comment, isn't there? There is. There is one more comment? This is my. I've been waiting for this one. Ooh. In fact, I've been quiet this whole time because I've been waiting to uh, <clears throat> get involved in this one. All right, so. Wilson, why don't you take this one away? Okay, <laughs> let me let me try to get in the uh, in the mood here. Bryant, cool, but my man, I'm not sure how helpful this episode was. It felt more like three guys playing semantics with each other more than anything else, and fell into the normal MTG circle jerk of legacy specialists trying to outshine each other. A really flat listen, but you know, there's a lot to unpack here. In quotes, SMH. Well, Wilson was super excited. So I, I, you know, I'm going to throw it immediately. He's got this big grin on his face. He's just ready to like provide feedback. <laughs> well, first of all, I, I'm a little, uh, in a, in a fog right now. I just, I'm, I have bad allergies and I took some Benadryl. Which one of you says there's a lot to unpack here all the time? Is that Brian? <laughs> you can guess again. <laughs> you take another guess. Oh, take another guess. Oh, that's you. <laughs> Nailed it. Of course it's me. Um, so while this obviously insults our whole podcast, I do like that both of you got sort of personally insulted in a couple places in here, which was a little bit amusing. Wait, 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 wait. I, you're being sarcastic, right? <laughs> it's pretty funny to me. But uh, it's just this comment is so sarcastic. So, okay, let me give my real response to this. Hey, we appreciate negative feedback. Um, the thing is, it's not very constructive, Right. So all this seems, this just seems like over the top insulting the last episode. And I just don't really understand why. If we're not talking about semantic, like legacy terminology, details of how we approach, you know, sideboarding and deck building and data and all these different things, what else are we going to talk about for an hour or two and a half, hour and a half every other week about legacy? Like, what do you, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to like tell you how brainstorm works? You know? So I don't really understand uh, what the goal for this would be. So I guess in, in the future, if anybody dislikes a topic or how we go about it or what have you, maybe make a uh, positive and constructive comment on what you would like to see instead of what we were doing. That would, just, that would be my feedback on this. And if you would like to find out how Brainstorm works, Wilson has another podcast that has 30, 32 episodes dedicated to how Brainstorm works and casting it. It's called The Brainstorm Show. That's right. Unfortunately, we're not producing episodes anymore, but uh, there is a podcast called Leaving a Legacy that generally likes to talk about this kind of thing, which I would refer you to. Um, I, I will say one thing, though, that uh, I, I do like kind of that we – get into the weeds about things um i do feel like uh i i would rather talk about like the more advanced concepts and things like that and i don't necessarily i'm not going to claim like i'm doing a good job at it that's why i definitely encourage all sorts of feedback both good and bad feedback listen if i'm doing something wrong please 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 let me know please let me know because i want to get better at this and i want to produce better content you know what I mean? all three of us are in the same boat there um but uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, just in terms of like where we are and what we want to accomplish, right? In terms of this podcast, I feel like it's 
I don't want to talk about like, you know, the level one, like, oh, you know, Teferi is a good card. I want to talk about exactly what Wilson said in that podcast, how he broke down each individual ability as to how much I would pay for it. And then I said, look, despite this reason, here are other reasons why I think I should play this card. You know, that kind of level of detail is, is interesting to me. It's interesting to Wilson, and I'm sure it's interesting to Bryant. Hopefully it's interesting to you too, uh, you guys as well. Um, yeah, it just makes no sense. Plus... To be honest, just to be totally honest, the number one reason why I'm doing this podcast is because I like playing tiddling winks with you guys. <laughs> so if, if people don't like uh, being a listener to that, uh, maybe there's another podcast for you. I want to point out one last thing. And and Wilson is a master at this, okay? I, I can never tell when he's trolling or when he's serious or whatever. And maybe that's really good because that'll edge me on to say something extra. But Wilson, you really do know that the one, the person who says there's a lot to unpack here is you, right? He's shaking his head. Can we move on to section one? I think we've talked about this. <laughs> All right, Bright, hit me. What's section one? How do you prepare for large events? Oh... Okay. So why don't we start with choosing your deck, testing, analysis, and etc. Like, how do you prepare deck-wise for big events? You want to hear a funny story? I'd also be willing to hear the answer. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when I used to, when before Top got banned, all right, uh, Bob and I, uh, we lived together. At Wait, who is this? Bob Wong. Bobbert Wong. Oh, Bob okay. Shengyun Wong. Okay. And the two of us lived together, and Bob asked me, he's just like, if if top got banned and this was years before and this was like a hypothetical question if top got banned would you still play miracles and i'd be like nah i probably try to like you know play the best deck that's out there and then top got banned then i quickly realized no i'm going to play miracles no matter what um un unless they're like banned terminus and it's completely unplayable in which case i'd probably try to still find a way to play it um but in terms of by by the way can i just say something real quick when I went to go uh, do some of our cardboard live stuff for the Mythic Invitational, I met Wizards of the Coast employees, and as a friendly intro, they asked me what my favorite Magic the Gathering card is, and I said, "Since it's dividing top." Did they did they say anything in response to that? <laughs> it sort of set the tone for the relationship. Oh my! All right. Well, I'm hoping they didn't point and laugh at you. Um, but you know, going back to the question, choosing my deck, I think I'm locked in. You know, I'm locked into playing Miracles for you know, the foreseeable future for any Grand Prix that come and go, like even at, in Atlanta, unless something actually just, you know, format warping happens where like Terminus, Jace, Brainstorm, and Ponder all get banned, probably playing Miracles. Uh, Wilson, Bryant? So I'm somewhat with you on sticking to your guns, but I think that there comes a point in which you must switch. So... Everyone knows I'm the Epic Storm. I live and breathe TES. It's what it is. But I'm willing to jump off the boat if it's such a bad choice that I know that I won't do well. So, for example, the Modern 2K that I played this weekend, I did not play Storm because there's so many decks playing main deck, Graveyard Hate for Is It Phoenix, Surgical Extractions, Cages, other things like that. I've even seen main deck Leyline of the Void. You just can't play a deck like blue red storm in that sort of environment so i was willing to switch and i think being willing to switch off your deck is something that you have to do if you want to maintain that competitive edge and i think even though anurag and i are both dedicated specialists to a deck or arch archetype we gain points of knowing every matchup inside and out which is often better than switching to the best deck for that week 
but there does come a time in which you have to be willing to switch off. Yeah, that makes sense. So if I can weigh in on this, I'll try to sort of narrow down what is a fairly complicated process into a few steps. And this is also younger Wilson. So this is not something that I necessarily have the time to do right now, but this is something that I, I would have done in the last few years in preparing for uh, a legacy Grand Prix. So number one, I think that having enough legacy knowledge and legacy testing allows for you to intuitively filter out a lot of potential options. So I think that that's really the number one step because you don't have infinite time. Even if you're going to devote a lot of time to testing magic, there's no way that you can test 30 to 40 different unique archetypes in preparation for one event. It's just not going to happen. So I think having that baseline of knowledge, whether it's listening to podcasts, reading articles, or just playing for years or whatever, helps you filter out and say, okay, no matter what the meta is, what are the decks that I just don't think are going to be good enough that I don't want to play? An example of a deck like this would be, you know, and I've actually done uh, content on Mandalus Dredge, so I'm not trying to dig at it. it. It's a cool deck. But I might say, okay, even if graveyard decks are extremely good at this event, there's something about Mandalus Dredge and the agency that I have over the winds and how it sort of attacks from this extreme axis of relying so heavily on a one zone or one part of the game that I'm just not going to stick with that deck for a 15-round event no matter what. And so that helps me siphon off somewhere between 80 to 90% of the possible strategies and legacy to play. Um, then I take a look at sort of the next pool of decks and I start analyzing what I think the meta is and I try to see, you know, where, where can I get an edge or what have you. And I know that's very simple and obvious. Um, but then after weeding it, you know, weeding through that, I start testing. And I'm thinking back to when I was fortunate enough to uh, top eight Grand Prix Providence in 2011. This is sort of the process I went through. I tested a lot of different decks. Mental Misstep was a new card in that format, which made things really interesting. It made it uh, a fairly new an open metagame to test for. And I ended up coming to this blue-red Painter Grindstone deck, and I was only able to decide that that deck was good enough, in my opinion, for the event because I tested a lot against high-quality players playing a variety of different competitive decks that attack from different angles. And at the end of the day, my opponents at the GP ended up being much worse than the opponents that I was actually doing fairly well against, who were my friends, um, which ended up helping me you know, tremendously. So... So that's sort of like, I guess, the, the three steps that I take into sort of trying to drill down uh, a deck or an archetype if I have enough time to sort of go through and actually test different decks after sort of weeding through like 90% of the meta. That's a lot more meticulous than what I do. Damn. I, uh, yeah, I, legit, me? All right, Terminus, check. Brainstorm, check. Jace, check. I will say that the deck, Miracles, has a number of nuances. Uh, do you want to play red? Do you want to play back to basics? How about black? So on and so forth. Uh, there are... Do you play three or four palaces? Exactly. Exactly. See, Wilson, you understand. So I, I, I spend a lot of time like in the trenches, like stressing over one or two card choices, three or four card choices. And like, I know like, you know, someone like Jarvis, Jarvis, you would be like, don't do that. That's not really that useful. Um, Wilson smiled again. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but that's just like, because I know I'm only going to be playing this deck all the small decisions for me, they matter a lot. Um, and when I play test, I pretty much just like throw the same thing at the wall over and over again with a couple tweaks here and there. And that's not like 
the perfect solution, I know. But like like Wilson said, there's not really that much time to do everything like as perfectly as possible. So yeah, I don't know. Well, let me just say you do benefit from with that strategy. When the deck is good, you probably get to test that deck more intensely than, than I do. So like when I get into specific card slots, it's I think I rely a little more on intuition than you do as far as putting in the reps with card choices. Um, to me, sideboard mapping becomes incredibly important, which is in many ways becomes theoretical because once you're able to know and understand how good the cards are, which is either intuitive or based on testing, you know, depending on who you are, um, then I think being able to have the right number of upgrades for all of the different matchups and make your deck aligned really well against the expected field is incredibly important. So like I rely heavily definitely on, on sideboard mapping to help build my lists and determine uh, what all my slots are going to be. See, I think I'm a little more mathematical due to my spreadsheet. I get to see every small card choice and know, Hey, I caught, let's say massacre, for example. And I noticed that my match win percentage went down to 62% from 64 with a number of losses against death and taxes. Hey, like this might immediately stick out to you because I chose massacre, but you end up noticing these sort of things when it's cards like chain of vapor or sideboard discard spells, things like that. Things that you would have a lot of versatility that come in in a lot of matchups, but actually are part of the glue that holds the deck together. I think that's an advantage that you get if you are able to put that much time into testing one archetype. So what's interesting about this topic is balancing that, right? When you don't have infinite time, like can you go that deep? You know, if you decide to, and I'm not saying that there's right or wrong answer at all. If you decide to stick with the deck, like Miracles or, or, or the Epic Storm or what have you, enough to know, like, I'm going to play this deck, then you can sort of get to that next level of what you're describing and have enough data, right? Because the worst thing to do is make judgments on results based on a small sample size. Like, I would advise either doing what you're describing, Bryant, which is a lot of data to determine um, a, a good conclusion, or using theory and uh, sideboard mapping where you're actually sort of assigning values to upgrades of cards, like a Swords to Plowshares being like a two against Tess and, you know, Flusterstorm being a nine or what have you, and being able to make your post-sideboard deck as good as it possibly can be against the expected field so that you're not uh, leaving value on the table, if you will. It's sort, of, it's sort of how I look at it if you don't have enough time. There's one other thing that I want to point out, and that's also just like the the metagame that sort of molds as you get closer to the Grand Prix. Like, for example, right now, right, I, I definitely noticed like six months ago, the card Stoneforge Mystic, basically unplayed. And now it's just like everywhere, right? So I guess that also like paying attention to like trends from week to week and like month to month and stuff like that also sort of impacts how I build my deck in terms of like, you know, I have a list of like matchups that I want to be favored against or I want to feel comfortable playing against. Um, and that changes uh, over time. And as it changes over time, that also very heavily impacts, you know, how I design my sideboard and my, my, my 75 just in general. All right, so uh, why don't we go on to part two of this, which is when you prepare for events, it's not all about your deck. There's other things that go in. So uh, how do you guys plan for traveling and hotel and all that stuff for some of our less experienced uh, big event players? Okay, so in terms of like logistics, one of the things that I really do like is that Channel Fireball... Okay, so full disclosure, 
I'm really bad at these kind of things. I'm really bad at logistics, mostly <laughs> out of laziness, all right? I'm really lazy. And like you might think you're lazy and I respect that, but trust me, I'm about as lazy if you really think you're lazy or you know, way lazier if you know you think you're just like not that lazy. Um, what I really respect about you is your honesty and and how you're the fact that you know that about yourself is actually probably helps you uh, excel and achieve great things in life. You can be a lazy person in life and do great things as long as you're you're aware of your own laziness. I appreciate that, but because I'm lazy, you know what, Wilson, like a lot of the times I just won't like book my hotel until like, you know, two or three weeks before. And then like prices skyrocket this time around though. Um, my fiance is coming with me and I figured, look, I need to get this stuff taken care of. You know, I can't just leave it to the last second. Uh, channel fireball had like a, they work with the Hyatt or something and they had like a really, really sweet promo code discount, whatever for the whole weekend. That was awesome. Um, so that's, and I think this is like a consistent thing too, right? Like I know Star City usually offers it um, for all the Grand Prix and stuff. That's the, something that should be available. How long, how early in, you know, before the tournaments do you guys prepare for like the logistics side of things, like buying tickets and things like that? And I have done it a little bit later than I used to because of how much I've been traveling recently. I will say that just off of what I'm trying to do now with the, uh, delta sky miles I, I generally fly delta and from my small city it means i'm almost always going to atlanta to somewhere so i get in a routine of sort of where i'm traveling um i've traveled a lot for work and now for magic as well so it helps me sort of get used to a lot of that stuff um i think leveraging nice friends who you're able to hang out with and stay at their places sometimes can be great but i do want to make a point on that which is what I don't like about magic culture sometimes is people who are feel entitled to staying at, at someone's home who lives where an event is, I think is can be sort of frustrating because it can put a lot of pressure. Like, sure, we have a lot of friends in this community, and that's like a really cool thing about traveling all, all over the world to, or to, to magic events where you know people. But I've been in a situ situation sometimes where it's awkward where, you know, it's it just I would just put out the advice like not to expect obviously for uh for someone to to host you. I think I just think that's an important thing. So a little bit of a rant, but I notice it sometimes. Brian, did you go to Wilson's house for GP Charlottesville and begrudgingly make him say yes? It's okay, you can be honest. No comment. Uh. <laughs> Although Wilson did say at Casa de Cook last week. I did. I showed up at his door actually without uh, telling him anything beforehand. I just said. You know, I'm staying here. Honestly, I'm a little offended because I did the same thing and he was just like, get out of my house. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I see how it is. Um, but real talk, when I was when I was in Bryant's town, I arrived late in the evening and accidentally walked into the neighbor's garage <laughs> because they had the exact same car as Bryant. It's kind of funny. Um, I, I will say one thing though, and that's just like, so I when I, when I lived on the East Coast, um, I didn't really worry too much about travel and that's probably part of the reason why it didn't matter as much. Um, because like, even if I booked a ticket like two or three weeks in advance, as opposed to like four or five or, you know, even earlier, uh, I mean, everything's on the East coast flights are pretty cheap or, you know, the difference in price isn't like that crazy. I found that the best time out is five weeks, at least in my experience. Uh, I live in a medium sized city and five weeks is when the flights are generally lowest. 
hotels seem to be fairly consistent as long as you don't book last minute. True. Yeah, I mean, so now I'm flying a lot. I mean, I'm flying exclusively from the West Coast to the East Coast. Most of these events are in the East Coast. And I, I noticed that, like, if I'm, like, just even a week late, the price jumps up by, like, two or $300. And I'm just like, uh, all right, well, I can't go to this event. So um, definitely getting, like, conditioned into shape now that I've moved to the West Coast. Um, book early for flights. Book early. I do, I do like that uh, Wilson, like, references um, the Delta Sky Miles thing. Um, capitalizing on like points definitely does help like lower the price overall. I need to become a real adult and start doing that. Me too. I did that. So I, I left a lot of value on the table starting that way later than I could have. And it was sort of painful to go back and see how many miles I left on the table because you can't go and add them back in after you sign up. Speaking about being an adult, have you guys done your taxes yet? Uh, yes. Is it the date tomorrow? Uh, bro, what did you say, Brian? No comment. No comment. Yeah. No, I said yes. <laughs> I have to do, I'm very meticulous about my taxes due to the epicstorm.com's opening up a storefront. So I wanted to make sure I wasn't doing anything illegal. So I did mine very shortly after you were able to. Mm, I like that. That's responsible. Um, but, you know, tournament events are not just about getting there, right? Like logistics go beyond that. So, once you get there, you've bought your flight, you're there, you've got your place to stay, like an Airbnb or a hotel or even at a friend's place. But like tournament maintenance is also like really tricky. And I know uh, when I first started playing Magic, a lot of the times I'd go to these nine round events and like I wasn't really cut out for it. Like by round five or six, I'd be super, super tired. Um, even now, like, you know, round nine, like I can definitely feel the fatigue, right? And it's just like Magic tournaments aren't just about playing Magic as optimally as possible. There's a lot of extra stuff that goes into it. Teach me your tips and tricks for this weekend. So one thing I experience is a lot of people saying, hey, it's only a four or five hour drive. I'll wake up at 6 a.m. I'll drive to Philly or whatever town it is or city, and I'll get there by 10. Tournament starts at 1030. They're filling out their deck list last second. And then they play in this event and they just crash. Because they get super tired at 4 o'clock and they just can't keep focus anymore. And then they get a deck list issue for doing it last second. And I feel like these are all things that are caused by laziness and bad preparation. So deck list, have it done days in advance. Print it out. You don't want to be writing it the morning of. It's something that frustrates me about people that are last second members of our community. And I've heard... People get in arguments with judges at the player meeting because the judge is trying to take their deck list when they're just doing their job. So there's no reason to not have your list finalized the night before or a day before and just print it out. Um, leave the night before. Don't wake up at 6 a.m. You're going to be exhausted all day. Uh, and a really big thing that I think gets lost because most Magic players are, you know, of the drinking ages, don't go out and get hammered the night before an event. Uh, I've learned my lesson a few times. And it's just not worth it. If it's an event you care about, don't go out and drink too much the night before. If it's some open you don't care about, let's say it's a standard open, but you're a legacy player and you don't really care, sure, get as sloshed as you want. But uh, I recall in an event in SCG Philly, it was the big premiere of Eldrazi. Jerry T. Top aided, and I believe Harlan did as well, where uh, my normal crew, Sam Rukas, and some other people, we went and got trashed the night before in Philly. And I think by, re by round four, 
the eight of us in our group, six of us had dropped by round four. Wait, I actually remember this. I 100% remember this, yes. It was miserable. So that was the last time that I can remember that I went out and got drunk the night before an event that I cared about. Well, if, if you had played Eldrazi, it probably wouldn't have mattered. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I I will say, to add to that, and we talked a lot about this, but just sort of the last thing here is that uh, I think the water bottle is one of the most important tools that you could bring with you to one of these events. I remember for a long time, as a youngster, I did not do that. And I was like purchasing, you know, $5 water at convention center or even getting maybe uh, some sort of sugary Gatorade drink so that I could then fill it up with water at the water fountain. If you just bring a water bottle, that helps out so much because playing Magic is actually fairly dehydrating. And I think a lot of those convention centers are pretty dry and uh, you just start to feel it after a while. But I want to add too, so psychology. I think this is big. I used to, you know, this is sort of like the concept of running track. Usually the 50 to 75% complete mark is when it is psychologically difficult to get through something that is long and tiring. But always know that the competitors, people you're competing against, are going through the exact same thing. So my competitive spirit, I like to imagine that my opponent in rounds six and seven are at the most, uh, at their weakest point during those times. So when you say like that's where you start to get tired, it's where you fall off, well, everybody's feeling that way. So as long as, even though I'm feeling tired, I make sure I'm putting myself into the shoes of my opponent and I start to feel like I'm going to, uh, to get them. It's like the chase, right? It's like you're, you're the lion chasing the gazelle and you're like, oh, I can see that they're, I'm tired, but they're, they're wearing down as well. So it makes me want to turn on the afterburners a little bit and sort of, you know, almost like take advantage of that and, and, and play better in those rounds to, to get an edge. As someone who visits Nature's Metal on Reddit, I'm a big fan of your analogy. So something that I want to talk about for day of event preparation, Wilson mentioned water bottles. I know that it seems silly, but in my backpack, I keep Tylenol and ibuprofen. A lot of people get headaches. It's happened to me at an RPTQ where I ended up spending $5 on two tablets to cure my headache. So that and a lot of these convention centers don't sell Tylenol. Like it's not like they just have vending machines full of, you know, a pill you can pop. It probably wouldn't be very safe, but you need to be prepared for whatever it is. And this isn't an invite to ask me for pills at tournaments. I will not give them to you, but Jeez. you need to be ready for anything that happens. Uh, I had an experience with Wilson at a Grand Prix in Toronto where we needed an umbrella. I now carry an umbrella in my bag. So like... If that's what you need to do, I am super prepared. I'd rather be the most prepared person in the room than the person struggling. Anurag, can you talk about the unique ritual that you like to perform between matches, particularly when you lose, I think? Yeah. Um, and I have spent so much money on this. Oh, my God. I <laughs> I don't like that laugh. That laugh makes me so uncomfortable. I switch my sleeves like every two to three rounds at a Grand Prix. I spend about 50 to $60 every event because I cannot stand, for the life of me, I cannot stand, I cannot stand, I cannot stand sleeves that just do not shuffle well. And look, I understand I'm crazy. I just have a really weird high tolerance for this sort of thing. Like my sleeves, they get, like if they get even like remotely grimy, right? A lot of Magic players, um, you know, uh, what am I looking for? Um, Self-maintenance, is that the polite way to say it? Wow. Maybe it's hygiene. I don't know. <laughs> so 
<laughs> um, wow. Thank you. Much better. That's a better wow. A lot of players don't do it, and sometimes you hand your deck off to somebody, they shuffle it, and they, you get back like a different set of 60-card sleeves, and it's just like it's like things are glued together. And Okay, I, I, I've rambled Those enough. Those sweaty, sweaty palms. Yeah. I just want to paint a picture, okay? So <clears throat> that's fine, right? Because Magic is generally an individual game where your actions don't necessarily affect anybody uh, working towards the same objective as you. Oh, wait, except there's one way to play this game called Team. There's a team format of playing Magic the Gathering. There have been team Grand Prix uh, that I have played in with actually both of our co-hosts here. So just want you as a listener to imagine, you know, going to time every round because your teammate is a very talented control player winning by the thinnest of margins. And uh, all of a sudden you look over, you know, pairings have gone up. Your teammate is about five cards in to re-sleeving <laughs> their deck two on before the start of round three of the tournament now and then repeat that seven times throughout the course of the gp so that was my experience teaming with anrog and you know no no judgment it was fine everybody's got their own quirks but uh let's just say that it, it added a bit to my tournament stress and i probably drank a little extra water uh, to deal with that at the event. so going back to something that anrog mentioned and i completely had forgotten about this up until it's not even in the show notes but he is right that maintenance and hygiene and being prepared and all that good stuff. But like you're sometimes your opponents are disgusting, sick people like Wilson's currently going through allergies and he looks not at his best. He's still very beautiful, but uh, at a grand prix in new uh, Hartford, Connecticut, starting off day two, I'm sitting at my table. My opponent comes up. He has snot in his arm of his hoodie and he's looks sick. His face is red. He's like drooling. It wasn't a very pretty picture and he goes to cut my deck and I'm like, hold on, I'm going to call a judge. And, uh, so I stand up to call a judge and he sneezes in his hands. And then I'm like, oh, that was gross. And I go to turn around again and he sneezes again into his hands. I'm like, okay, please don't touch my deck. So I had to go call a judge and the judge, and I explain it to him very nicely. I'm like, Hey, I just don't want this guy with his snotty hands touching my very expensive deck. And, uh, so the judge politely asked my opponent to go wash their hands my opponent comes back and immediately sneezes into their hand again. And at this point I'm super uncomfortable and I just, I pulled an honor rug. I went and bought new sleeves after the round cause I don't want to be sick the entire event, but I also bought hand sanitizer. So I now keep hand sanitizer <laughs> in my bag. Like sometimes your opponents are just disgusting, sicky people and it's important to wash your hands, but also magic players, wash your hands after you go to the bathroom. I've seen everyone from no names to high profile pros just wash your hands. I love like all these stories. Like it, I feel like Bryant's turned into the MacGyver of legacy. He's got like an umbrella, hand sanitizer, shampoo, pills, you know, gotta pop them. all sorts of things. Okay. Can, can I, yeah. can I please go back to my like weird quirk? Cause I want to clarify why it's a thing. Okay. Why do I do this? Why do I spend egregious amounts of money and how do I prepare for this? Okay. It's an easy preparation. I buy sleeves in bulk and I buy them off store credit. So it's not really like that expensive, but the reason I do it is because when I have sticky sleeves, I get so majorly tilted. It's tilt is like irrational, right? Tilted in tournaments and stuff like that. And or maybe it's like an emotional response. And I I know that, you know, the best way for me to tackle this is to just be like emotionally mature and just be like, look, they're just sleeves. It's still random order. You don't have to worry about it. But 
part of me, I mean, maybe it's just like something, a way that I could get better as a player. I, I can't tackle that just yet. So I would at least prefer to not have to worry about that by, I guess, just throwing money at the problem. Um, I'm really proud of you saying this. And actually, maybe you're not even suggesting what I know, which is that when you lose, you actually just want like a... A distraction. Basically like a pacifier. Yeah, you, you, want, to, you want something to sort of satiate yourself uh, to, to deal with the loss, right? Is that safe to say? Uh, kind of, a little bit. Not well, okay. It's not always directly correlated to losing. Although I will say whatever I lose, I may or may not stroll by the vendor booths and look at the four or $500 duels and just, you know, think what if before looking at That's my Bank of America account. But my, uh, is mind-boggling to me is that you resleeve every round, you don't use perfects, and you have FBB duels that are now just riffle shuffle crease the hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there. Anyway, they I don't not... want to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, we're about 40 minutes in. And we haven't even finished our first section. <laughs> All right, true. We'll, we'll put a hard cut here. Um, we want I just, before I, you put so much effort in the show notes, I will also mention sleep is important for the, before the event. Um, get sleep. You will be tired the night, the, the day of. Uh, I've done that a number of times for like even streaming or like where I go to bed at like 2 a.m. and I wake up the next day. I'm just like, I am not ready for this event. Um, nine hours of magic is a lot. Um, section two, awkward transition, but it's not awkward because we're awesome and you're awesome. Um, thoughts on the timing and the location of this event. I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about Magic Fest, Niagara Falls, New York. Wait, is it actually Niagara Falls come in New York? Is Niagara Falls in New York? It is. The, technically, there's a Canada half and a New York half, but... The Grand Prix will be on the New York half. It is in the United States. True. Um, me personally, I've never been to Niagara Falls before. Um, it's supposed to be like a touristy spot, right? Like, so that's kind of cool, sort of. I mean, I know like when I go there, uh, I'm only going to, I'm flying in Thursday night. Uh, Friday is my vacation day i think there's a ptq on friday so i'm not really sure if i'm even gonna have like friday to myself to explore the city and things like that and then saturday sunday is the grand prix and monday morning i'm out right so yes niagara falls is like super cool as a location i'm not sure if i get to capitalize on that because of how badly i want to win this tournament so not to rain it down on the your parade but I think the idea of going to one of the nine wonders of the world or whatever it is for a Grand Prix is pretty cool. But Niagara Falls is like kind of a depressed town. Like it's fairly run down. It's not that great. I, I didn't put it in the show notes, but it's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we probably would have deleted that comment if you had put it. In yeah, there, so. it's uh, not exactly a beautiful city. The roads are fairly bad because you have to drive through Niagara in order to get to Canada, which I've done multiple times for Toronto events. And uh, the roads have tons of potholes. It's just like not a beautiful city. If you're a listener from Niagara Falls and complain in the Reddit thread, Bryant will profit share this episode's donations with you. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you guys think of the event being on Easter weekend? Can I speak to this? No, you may not. So I know Anurag and I have different cultural and religious backgrounds. So for me, it's less about like, you know, I think in the magic community, we like to think of it as, oh, does this affect me, right? I like to think of this objectively and statistically as, you know, I mean, we are in a country where some percentage of people 
use this as a family weekend more often than the vast majority of weekends on the calendar. And because of that, it's undoubtedly not a great weekend to hold a large event. That said, um, prioritizing legacy Grand Prix scheduling is something that reasonably Wizards doesn't do because they have all these different events. They've got the Mythic Championships. They've got all of these different Magic Fests of different formats. So I can understand that the scheduling's tight. I'm not even going to get after them a lot for it. It just really is unfortunate because we have two Legacy Grand Prix. One of them is on a weekend that I think there are a lot of people out there who are not going to go because of um, family considerations and, and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, that that is unfortunate timing. But, like, if it's not this event, you know, it's going to be another event. It sucks that it has to be Legacy, which, I mean, it hits... Well, that's not... Well, can I push back? That's not necessarily true. There's not a Magic Fest event on every single weekend at all. It's, all, it's like once every, like, three weekends or something like that, right? So... Okay. I don't know. So that's just... I think both Star City and Wizards literally book by location based on cost. So... They know that, hey, Easter weekend in Niagara Falls, a rundown city and Easter weekend, they're able to get that venue super cheap. So I think this is a big factor in where they choose to hold these events. Mm -hmm. I think that's reasonable, yeah. Speaking of random costs, did you know that it costs about seven to $10,000 to get internet for streaming events per per event? Did you look into this? Uh, I found that out, and I was pretty... Um, surprised to hear that it was that expensive can't you just get like a really great hotspot and run it off of that i do know that's around the same cost that vendors pay for tables at magic fests i see interesting very interesting i know i just want to throw that out there i thought that was like an interesting little tidbit another legacy podcast talked about how it was a whole 30 minute drive from buffalo new york or uber ride to Niagara Falls as a downside of this location. Uh, I think that's a little bit ridiculous. A 30-minute Uber ride or taxi drive to another town or venue or whatever, who cares? You have to do that everywhere. I remember once for an invitational in Wilson's favorite place, Atlanta, Georgia, I took an hour-and-a-half-long train ride that was that's what you had to do in order to get to the event site. So like sometimes that stuff sucks, but it's a part of – traveling to different cities and playing events and that sort of thing. And if you don't like that, you should probably just stay home. Damn. I mean, I wouldn't go that far, but I, 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 I'm, I'm lucky enough to be in the position where like the, the additional cost of something like a 30 minute Uber ride is, uh, it's negligible, right. For me. But I like, I just, I just kind of like suck it up. Like I, it's legacy for me. And my metric is like, I have I'm a pushover for most things. I will probably go through a lot just to make sure that I get to play Legacy in like a high high venue. So this 30 minute thing to me is just like whatever you know I suck it up kind of deal. Um, I can understand being a little bit you know upset about it. Um, it's it's not the most convenient thing, but also for me I'm just like super grateful to play Legacy, so I put up with a lot. Yeah, I'm very similar with you on that. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about Niagara Falls other than just shitting on it by, you know, like I did five minutes ago. See, see this uh, is going to be interesting because I've never been there before. Maham has been there three times. And when I told her, hey, it's in Niagara Falls, are you excited to go? She was like, eh. So please. Well, she knew. Yeah. 
Hype me up. Well, I, so uh, uh, Brian Brian's also sort of a negative person about stuff in general, right? So I mean, I just I just want to go. I want to go back to this. If if you're from Niagara Falls, uh, we really like you, and you probably live in a wonderful town. And not everybody on this podcast shares the same negative opinion about everywhere in the U.S. But go on, Brian. Are you done? Yeah, go, go for it. Can I talk now? Okay. So uh, the falls themselves are absolutely beautiful. So it's super awesome to take a couple hours, go see the falls, but don't plan an entire day on it. Even if you do a boat ride or a ferry ride or something along those lines, it's going to take you about two hours. Like they're not this massive thing unless you decide to walk from one side of the falls through the Canadian side, you have to go through customs and then go to the other side. You're not going to spend all day seeing the falls. You can if you walk very slowly, but you're going to want to do some other stuff. So uh, make sure to bring your passport if you do plan on going over to the Canadian side because they will not let you in, just a heads up. Uh, if you scrub out on Saturday, there's a wine tour for $25 that you can go on. It starts in the afternoon. Uh, it says that it can be completed in three and a half hours. Just saying it's an option. And, uh, for those of you that don't date you, uh, there's something called a private ice wine tour for $75 that will take six hours. Uh, New York is well known for their wine. So if, uh, that's something you're into, feel free to, uh, indulge yourself. Can I ask you an ethical question? Sure. Did you look this up or have you done this before? I looked it up for things that you could possibly do in Niagara. That's so cute. You're amazing. Continue. Yeah, I care about our listeners, Anurag, and you. Uh, I did a quick search. These might not be amazing references, but these were what locals recommend in Niagara. Third Street Retreat, Griffin Gastropub, and Chill 443 is good slash great bar food. So burgers, fries, you know, pizzas, that sort of thing. And I was told that uh, you can go to Duff's Famous Wings, but it's kind of a tourist trap. So if you really, really want to get buffalo wings, that would be the place to go. But they're just chicken wings with hot sauce on them. You can get them anywhere. Don't go to touristy places. That's my recommendation. So uh, going back to our previous topic about Easter weekend, do you guys feel like Grand Prix Atlanta or Magic Fest Atlanta being scheduled had anything to do with the legacy outcry about Grand Prix Niagara Falls. Absolutely not. I agree. I think I feel like this is the kind of thing that's been planned like way, 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 way in advance. We usually get a legacy GP in uh in September ish, right? I mean last year it was Richmond. Mm-hmm. So also in big cities like we had one in Seattle. Wait, wait, last year how many Grand Prix did we have in, in, in the US? I think there's two. I think there's been two every year for the last several years. But it's usually uh, West Coast, East Coast. So this is two on the general East Coast, which is interesting. I saw some posts on Reddit about how people thought this was in response to the outcry. And I'm not even sure if Wizards saw the outcry. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I just don't think that there's any way, but who knows. Even so, there was 200 people that signed a petition. Did we ever get a response? Did we? Uh, did, did, any, did anyone ever respond to that officially? I don't know. I don't believe so. Okay. I, I will say there were some points that I, I, I am uh, that the petition mentioned that like kind of did strike me. Like For example, because this is on Easter weekend, so there, there are obviously some, some ramifications, right? If people aren't showing up because it's a holiday— uh, is it fair for Watsy to be like, Legacy doesn't have high attendance, you know, when we only have two Grand Prix and like 
people are busy spending time with their families on, you know, wait, it's a three day weekend, right? I don't believe so. Okay, yeah, not even a three day weekend, but a special weekend nonetheless. Um, I I know that there was um, a little bit of uh, humdrum about that kind of thing. Um, so I saw some humdrum about Star City announcing their legacy open for their period because legacy uh, opens happen once per uh, half, I guess what you call them. Uh, so they scheduled their next one in Syracuse, New York, where I live, which is pretty great getting two legacy opens in one year, but it's the week before magic fest Atlanta. And I saw a lot of people, um, lights are going to be expensive discussing how they hate that legacy events get scheduled near one another. Uh, it's unfortunate, but I feel like one is very good practice for the other. And you should take advantage of what you can get because the metagames will be very similar. So if you're willing to play in both, you will have a significant edge on everyone else. And I get it. Two events back-to-back is really rough, but you have to take advantage of legacy events when they come because there's so few of them that if you have to take two weekends off and not go to your soccer game or whatever one weekend, it's worth it to play legacy in my eyes. I, I mean, it might shift from person to person. I, I see where you're coming from, and I'm in the same boat as you. I'm If there's a big legacy event, I'm going to try to make it. I did not think I was going to make the first SCG Syracuse, but I like I kind of just like bent myself backwards to make it. And like, I, don't get me wrong, I love the experience, and I will probably be going to the next SCG Syracuse and spending um, a delightful night in Casa de Cook. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, it, it it is a little unfortunate there. Like I, I know, for example, the one player when when you mentioned this, right? The one player that comes to mind is um, Sammy Rukas, the Sam himself, and he mentioned that there was like one tournament every year that he like one legacy big legacy tournament every year that he's not able to make because like um, I think it's just like his uh, married now his wife's birthday or something like that. It is always November 4th. Yeah, and there's always a legacy tournament there, and he's never able to make it, and they always schedule like a, just like a, a list of events at that same time. It's kind of weird that they don't just like stretch the legacy events out throughout the year, uh, but rather have like those concentrated pools. I wonder why. I, I mean, I'm not, I don't have any inside information or anything like that, but uh, you're saying if you're hearing this podcast and you do schedule a legacy event, <clears throat> their summer, summertime is looking pretty empty. I saw some people discussing, and I honestly wouldn't have thought of this uh, without it coming in front of my eyes, but is it weird that Wizards has not scheduled a European Legacy Grand Prix yet? X-Files music. I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm i not sure how I feel about this whole Watsy, like, not releasing the full... Uh, what was there? So they do it, like, quarterly now, right? Yeah, and I wonder if that's so they can better schedule formats based on attendance and locations and things like that that's an interesting point yeah i just want to say that some of my favorite legacy players in the world are northern europeans so uh shout out to anybody from northern europe who happens to be listening to this podcast right now why does it have to be northern europe also that's very unlike you being a southern in the u.s actually i would say southeastern Americans share similar cultural and I want to say maybe, maybe like a similar sense of humor to Northern Europeans. All right. I have to start disliking Marcus. Wow. Tap your Island, add 50 mana. Nice. Um, 
So uh, I wrote the next topic, and this is this might be controversial, it might not be, but are legacy players ungrateful? Uh, I feel like whenever they post legacy events, there's a lot of negative comments about, oh, great, two events and two weekends on Easter weekend on this. Like, I remember 10 years ago when there were no legacy Grand Prix and very few legacy Star Cities. There's maybe one or two a year. And I remember the first Legacy Prime Grand Prix coming out and people going nuts that they couldn't believe that Wizards started supporting our format. It was a huge deal. And I feel like Legacy players have gotten complacent and they now expect to be treated like modern format. And it just doesn't make sense to me. I think that you should be grateful for every single opportunity you have to play this format that is incredibly hard to get into because of the cost. And at some point, I see Legacy, you know maybe not getting the attention that it's getting now because of dual lands being $2,000 five years from now. So playing all the legacy events you can while they still exist is how I view it. And instead of complaining about the cost of a magic fest being $75, sell a card you don't care about and play the experience will be worth it to you. I will say one of the cool things about magic is the free market aspect of tournament organization. And what I mean by that is, Wizards of the Coast doesn't have a monopoly on organizing tournaments for their game. They actively encourage other people to organize events for the game they have created. So I think if Legacy continues to grow and be, you know, stay as popular as it is or become more popular, it opens up opportunities for large retailers, uh, passionate individuals or what have you, to organize uh better and more competitive legacy events, even if we stick with the same number of official legacy Grand Prix we have today. So sort of like what you talked about at the beginning of this, Bryant going to the leaving a legacy open. Obviously that's not as big as something like this, but the more events like that there are, the the cooler it is for the format. And it's fortunate that we have a structure where people are incentivized to do things like that. So uh, hold on, Anurag, I'm sorry. Uh, But you could argue that Michael Caffrey tried doing that with the Eternal Extravaganza. He was doing a great job. And all of a sudden, he didn't change anything. Players just quit coming because they felt like the events were scheduled too close to other big legacy events. And his series that was amazing just fell off the face of the earth. Right. Yeah, but but that's that that goes along with sort of the free market nature of, of what I'm describing, right? Like, if the people are there, if they come, you can make a thing. Unfortunately, I guess, I, I don't, I have no idea what the reasons are for all of this. Uh, maybe that didn't work out for whatever factors there were, uh, which is unfortunate. But, I mean, for a long time we had Star City, an independent tournament organizer, retailer, um, organizing some pretty awesome legacy events. They still do some every now and then, even though I know it's decreased. So maybe there's like a a West Coast Card Kingdom type of tournament series possibility there. I don't know who it's going to be. I just know that there's if there's enough players to support these big events, the structure is set up so that somebody can do them. Yeah, isn't there like a running meme where like, I feel like every time something gets announced, like magic players are just like always in like an outcry or something like that. And then like it gets tempered down by the people who are just like, yo, take a deep breath. Think about it. This is a pretty good situation. And then, you know, people are eventually like, yeah, it's pretty good. Except for the London Mulligan. No, not that. (laughs) Well, let's say like Star City posts their calendar. There's people that are like, I can't believe you're not coming to Wyoming. I live in Wyoming. Why aren't there any events here? No one goes to Wyoming ever. I'm sorry if you're from Wyoming, but like 
you have to keep in mind that these are companies trying to turn a profit and they're going to go to the most profitable places as possible. So if they can find a venue for super cheap with a reasonably active airport, they're going to go to those places. Yeah, that's a big thing. Like at the end of the day, these people need to make sure they make money, right? Like it's great that they're doing this for us, but like I mentioned, if if internet costs $10,000 per event, sometimes you're going in the middle of nowhere to save on, you know, venue space and stuff like that, like how many events are there every year? That that sounds like like hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? There are forty Magic Fests per year, I believe. Yeah, four hundred thousand dollars in just like streaming, like just to get the internet alone, and then like additional costs on top of that, half a million dollars on on providing that. And like I I get that it's really good for us, but like imagine like that money gets spent elsewhere, and like I don't know, like could you imagine a company going bankrupt because they tried to do something for us, and now that we get nothing at all? Like that's. That's like the worst case scenario. I'm just, I'm, I don't even know where I'm going with this, to be totally honest, but I'm just saying like, you know, it's nice. You mean Eternal Extravaganza, where players felt like it was too close to Eternal Weekend and they didn't show? Oh, wow. Look at that. So Yeah, and now that's exactly just, what happened. And there's just nothing Legacy now, players so. need to support Legacy events and stop crying. I feel like I'm becoming a Republican through this uh, podcast. How do you feel about that? Well, hey, what was that? I was just tuned out for a second. I heard the word Republican, though, and... Are we getting political? I said, based on my views, I feel like I'm becoming a Republican through this podcast. Wow, that's interesting. We should probably move on to the next topic then. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, next topic. Metagame expectations. Question one. I wrote a lot here. Question one. And Brian, I'm going to let you answer this first. Since you wrote a lot, what will most likely be the most popular decks you have 30 seconds dragon stompy stone blade blue red delver clean crisp concise to the point i love it can you uh explain why you think these are the most popular decks shells of the void is just a very popular card it's easy to cast and it's very powerful so players not with a lot of a legacy experience are likely to pick up chalice of the void decks dragon stompy is uh the current trend i think it's a lot better than a deck like eldrazi and because of that, Stoneblade has become the current blue-white deck in order to beat it. It's a lot better to beat them by being proactive. So uh, a lot of Miracles players are picking up their Stoneforge Mystics. And uh, Blue-Red Delver, it's still carrying a lot of popularity over from the open win uh, that it had last month. But uh, I think Blue-Red Delver is going to be an underperformer at this Grand Prix. But I do think it will probably be the most played deck. Wait, can I take a sec? Uh, take a second, just to like, like, uh, I'm like in a state of awe right now because I'm thinking, right? Like, you you could you could very easily track the progress of the le- legacy metagame just like after the banning of Deathrite Shaman, right? So Deathrite Shaman gets banned. Now blue decks have no broken or overly powerful card to play, right? So now a deck like Chalice of the Void, which is you know a little bit underpowerful, uh, underpowered compared to uh, Deathrite Shaman runs to the forefront because everyone's trying to play their brainstorm ponder decks. All the Delver decks started putting more like preordains and, you know, dead air in their deck because like, you know, they had to replace the death, death rise somehow. Um, so Chalice of the Void, now very good to the point where all the blue decks are like, hey, look at this. I don't really like this. I don't want to do this anymore. So let's, you know, cut these cantrips and play like proactive two and three mana spells that sort of laugh at Chalice of the Void. True Nemesis, I'm looking at you. Um, and then suddenly, you know, like a card like Back to Basics 
rises to the forefront because that's such a good tool in these two color you know stone blade decks and then delver it gets to the point where we go full circle and delver's like well you know what i'm going to evolve my deck too cut the third color go back down play multiple basics in my list boom this is the metagame we're at i like that okay i i like what you're saying i disagree with a specific part of your first point and maybe we don't even disagree it was just sort of the reason why people are we circle drinking right now is that what this is yeah, I, I was actually, I'm, I'm sitting here with that comment as my background on my computer. It's it's. Motivating. I like that all three of us thought the same thing, because I thought the same thing, too. I know, it was great. <laughs> um, so, so I think that the reason why Chalice got popular after the Band of Deathrite is largely because of Ancient Tomb and Mox Diamond, more so than the card Chalice of the Void itself. I think that the mana acceleration aspect of those decks, allowing you to play something that is now much more powerful what your non-death right opponent can be doing on turn one is the real reason why chalice became so good and like chalice is sort of a byproduct of that right like it, it is stopping all of those those one drops that are already good that, that deck is playing no matter whether you're playing death right or not um but the fact that you're getting so far ahead with without a death right ever being there uh, I, I think is a huge part of this particularly when you consider answers like uh Kologan's command that are just night and day difference from whether, you know, like if you're on the draw and against the Terminal Deathrite Shaman versus they don't have it. Um, I think that that's, that's a, a huge reason in my opinion. So yeah, so mana acceleration, like the, I think that's where we're at today. Legacy, and actually why it became very balanced format is that's what blue decks don't have access to now. And that's like, if you're not a blue deck, that's how you should be getting an edge is by somehow cheating on mana, whether it's Ancient Tomb, Mox Diamond, Ether Vile. Dark Ritual. Potentially, yeah, Dark Ritual, exactly. Uh, potentially Mana Dorks in some of these other decks like Maverick or whatnot. Um, yeah, so that's, that's sort of my take on it. All right, so uh, back to the original question. Like, So these are going to be the most popular decks, in my opinion, at least. Like, How do you beat them? My answer is Grixis Control. I think that Colligan's Commander, Colligan's Commander, however you would like to say it, is currently underplayed and an insanely good card. Uh, it crushes Dragon Stompy, it kills a Rabble Master and a Chalice of the Void. It doesn't cost one. Uh, it kills a Stoneforge Mystic and a Batter Skull. It's just really well positioned. I do think it is a little bit weak against Blue Red Delver. Or Grixis Control in general is a little bit weak against Blue Red Delver. But you can tune your sideboard in order to get that matchup to be a lot closer. So if I was someone that was willing to not play the Epic Storm this weekend, I do think registering some copies of Baleful Strix and Colligan's Command uh, might be a wise idea. I totally agree with you. Just looking on paper, uh, it just everything you're saying makes total sense. The number one, the, the reason why to not play Grixis Control is Accumulated Knowledge Miracles, I think, sort of took the edge on that deck. But the fact that we have, like you said, seen a move away from Miracles towards Stoneblade, Grixis does a great job of beating the Stoneforge plan. So I, I really agree with that. Yeah. So I think a very good candidate that isn't discussed enough in this new Dragon Stompy Stoneblade world is uh, the Jeremy Special Sneak and Show. Uh, we've seen GP JPA 93 crushing events on Magic Online. And I think people are, they're still saying it's because he's a savant. It's just really, really well positioned at the moment. I saw before we started recording this podcast that JPA had uh, top aided another legacy challenge today. And it's not because he's incredibly good with the deck. I mean, that has something to do with it, but it's because who cares about Stoneforge Mystic on turn two? That Chalice for the one, it might not be great, 
but I can easily win through it. And cards like like uh, he's running Cunning Wishes now help you get around these. Can I take it just just a quick second? For anybody who doesn't know who JPA93 is, he, his name is Jonathan Angelescu. He's an insane magic player. And just... Wait, say that again. What's up? What's Jonathan Angelescu. I, I probably didn't say it right, but forgive me, JPA. No, you said it, you said it really fast. Oh, actually. true. Yeah, go on. Well, just to give you context, all right? In this past month, there have been a number of premier level uh, magic legacy tournaments online. Jonathan, JPA, has top aided the format uh, playoff in which he got... But top eight second place, I think, losing to Chase on some deck pile. He top aided the PTQ like two weeks afterwards. And I think he's gotten, he's definitely top aided this week's challenge. Pretty sure there's another legacy top eight challenge in that scope. So this guy has an insane, absurd win rate with Sneak and Show. And it's kind of weird because like, I think there's just like this like stigma around Sneak and Show, right? People don't like losing to this deck. Um, there's like a the attitude that it's just like a herd derb, uh, you know, monkey sort of deck where you don't really have to think about it but can you explain to me how a deck can do so well in the hands of someone like can you imagine if like everybody was as good at this deck as he was like i i i refuse to believe that he's just like you know brainlessly playing this deck and like just getting really really lucky right his win rate is just too high for that here okay here's my take on it it's a cynical take he probably is really good but I think that an above average. <laughs> Let me think about how to say this. this is, we could get attacked for for this kind of comment if I say it incorrectly. But a lot of inexperienced players oftentimes play sneak and show, which skews results to it being performing worse than it actually is. So it's sometimes more of the fact that people are not doing what they need to do to win with the deck than it then one person is playing masterfully with the deck, if that makes sense. I mean, I've been in events many times where I should not have beat Sneak and Show, and all they needed to do was jam the combo. That's literally all they needed to do. And for some reason, the game played out in a way where they waited one extra turn or did something sort of weird, and I ended up winning the game because of it. And I think that the difficulty in, in playing the deck is not as high as other decks, like the decks that you two, you guys play, but it's just for whatever reason, it's a it's an it's a more entry level deck to the format. There aren't a lot of masters or experts picking it up, and uh, you know the the seal the bar is lower than it is for some other decks. But people are still not reaching it just just based on I think the the number of people who play the deck. So, so I own Sneak and Show. Uh, it's a deck that I lent one of my friends for Star City Games Syracuse. Like Wilson said, it's an entry level deck, and you can cast. Uh, show and tell put a big fatty into play and win the game but the true skill in playing sneak and show is actually very similar to playing storm combo it's mulligan decisions knowing what kind of hands you can keep in certain matchups and that sort of thing and that's where the real edge comes from in my opinion is saying seeing these hands that might be two or three combo pieces and going well that's actually okay if my opponent's playing this and that sort of thing and that's where you get those percentages in my opinion brian does own sneak and show his friend beat me in the classic day two. And you know what? Brian's sneak attacks are English non-foil. I said it. I said it. Um, I didn't know we were attacking people in this episode. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I think mulligan decisions are one. I will say one thing about that's special about like JPA is that there was like a, he was in the mocks one year um, and there was a stat that was like, what player has played their deck 
3,500 times on Moto, and this was a years ago, right? 3,500 matches with one deck. That was Jonathan Angulescu. And by now, he's probably hit 7,000, maybe even 10. I don't, I don't know how much the guy plays. Um, you shouldn't look at my spreadsheets. I shouldn't look at your spreadsheets? Uh-oh. All right, well... What about Eric Landon? Eric Landon? I don't know. I'm hearing the nerd alert everywhere, and I love it. I love it. But, uh, like, that's another thing. The guy has is basically wearing a sneak and show like bodysuit. It's like his his skin is exactly that. He has played the deck so many times that he knows that the difference between a preordain and a ponder in a six card hand against this deck means you have to play this way and that way and like and, and I, I I doubt anybody else knows the deck like that. You know what I mean? And what does a sneak and show bodysuit look like? All right, we're going to move on to our next topic. What do you guys think about death and taxes in the current metagame? All right, have you guys, can I tell you a story? Yeah, I, this is not really a story, but the the point is Thomas Ennevoldson is probably like the best legacy player in all, like I, I'm convinced he is top five legacy players. He, he's number one on MTG ELO. Don't give me that look, Wilson. He's number one on it. Can we uh, get your point? <laughs> I was going to say, once we get to like the hour marker in the show, it's just Anrod gushing, fanboying about his, results. his top five favorite players. How yeah, does somebody so, do so well with a deck okay, like Death and Taxes? Anurag. Unless it's so, really good. <laughs> unless it's uh, really Death good. Death and Taxes, I think, is actually really bad in the metagame right now. I want to talk about the deck and not people, Anurag. Uh So Death and Taxes, it, so recently it's had an issue with True Name Nemesis popping up because the Blue Red Delver decks, the Grixis Delver decks, and... Blue White Stoneblade are all playing three copies of True Name Nemesis, sometimes four, depending on the list. And Death and Taxes, it's the biggest card that they have an issue with because they actually can't interact with it. So I've seen a lot of Death and Taxes players switching off their deck or trying drastic things to make their deck be able to beat a uh, True Name Nemesis. So I've even heard things as crazy as playing two main deck Council's Judgment in Death and Taxes. It's just a way to try to get a competitive edge. So I agree with that. The other side of the coin on that is that in some of those decks, that's really the only good part of the strategy against what Death and Taxes is trying to doing, trying trying to do. And I think that there's enough mana denial sometimes that you can uh, you can deal with that. But yeah, I, I get that the uptick of True Name is generally not good for Death and Taxes. I would say that the decrease of Colagon's command, however, is a positive. Yeah, and I, I I actually think that the deck is pretty well positioned, and I think it's because of a recent addition to the deck, and that card is but a but Palace Jailer. Is that recent? I knew you were gonna yeah. say it's like a year and a half ago. No, I don't think it was like really really widely adopted. Um, I I feel like that card just like gives the deck a lot of game against uh, a lot of the control decks. Which you know, death and taxes used to be reasonably even against, but even in like a even like the Grixis matchup, right? Like where you use cards like Colagon's Command and Baleful Strix to like you know get two for ones. Palace Jailer kind of just lets the death and taxes player keep up rather than you know be stuck with no cards since they don't play Brainstorm and like you know they can't like craft a fifteen turn game plan or things like that. Palace Jailer says two thousand sixteen on it. Yeah, but nobody was playing it until like that's a lie. And just because you started playing at Miracles two weeks ago... Does, I'm uh, pretty sure. I'm pretty mean. sure. I'll look it up afterward. People... But you're right. You're right. Palace Jailer is insane in Death and Taxes. I think the world got to see it on the big stage at the Team Pro Tour last summer, just absolutely destroying people, which was really cool to see. And yeah, 
It's great. So if you're a cool. fan of the show and you are a death and taxes enthusiast, can you please in the comments, write when you started playing death and taxes and your thoughts on palace jailer in death and taxes for its number one fan on Ragnos. I love palace jailer. That card is so sweet. Um, All right, so I see the next comment on our show notes is the format is wide open. Wilson, take it away. Yeah, I think the format's wide open. (laughs) (laughs) All right, and that's a wrap. No, that's a really good point. Bob showed me some stats that he pulled since, like, the release of the last set, and it was literally, like, there was no deck that was... uh, No, it was was from the PTQ. Every deck that went X3 or better... Um, and it was it was basically just the same number down a line, except for like Grixis Delver, which had four. Every other deck was like three, 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 and like a two in there, um, which was which is absurd. I don't think that's ever been the case, or it hasn't in in, in recent memory. It just hasn't been the case. Grixis Delver used to be top, top top dog miracles before that. Now it's just like there's no real way to differentiate who's you know ahead. Yeah, I love Legacy right now. I think it's the best it's been since probably like 2012, 2013. Yeah, no, it seems awesome. And even though I'm going to guess that Robert, our friend Robert, does not have a large enough sample size to have uh, an informed conclusion on the data. Yeah, Bob is notoriously bad for pulling statistics out and adding meaning no, to no, them. No, 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 I, I, I no. Will, I will step in and say this was exactly the PTQ. Like, the, the PTQ top 30, whatever, all the X3 deck lists who went 6 and 3. It's still neat. It's still neat to see the diversity, even if it's a small sample size. I, I, and I, I think that the metagame as a whole does back that up. So even outside of just that result... What I mean, we're talking about all these different decks. There's pros and cons. There are certain decks that are good against other ones. What we're about to get into here in a second, which is our top eight predictions, it was tough. I mean, I think that we're sort of just taking a stab because there's not really a great way of, of predicting what the top eight of this event will be. So, Wilson, what's your favorite deck in Legacy right now? Oh, favorite deck in Legacy right Miracles. now. So a deck that I would really like to play if I had a little more time to get into would be Maverick. Why is that? I'm not saying it's... What you say? What is that? Why is that? Oh, why is that? There's been some new cards printed recently that allow for some cool flexibility that have not existed yet in that deck. It's the uh, Night of Autumn, I think it's called, right? I think that's that's a cool addition. I'm not saying that changes a ton, but generally, it's a it's a very cool control deck with that has lock elements that I think attack what these fair blue Stoneforge decks are trying to do really well, and it's also solid against some of these um, slower combo decks, in my opinion. So I think I think it just like has decent game against a lot of things. It's it's pretty good against some of the Chalice decks in the format, and. Uh, I just like it. I also think it's a little bit, it's just better against some of the blue control decks than people once thought it was. I think that at one point, old miracles really pushed Maverick out of legacy, but we live in a, a whole new era. And I think that Maverick should probably be seeing a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I'm going to give a special shout out to uh, one of the best Maverick players I know, Mr. Dan Neely, who also top aided the legacy PTQ. I think, I don't know if it was with Agro Loam or if it was with uh, just green white maverick but i know that his recent take on um on the deck is that it, you know it plays like a very fair maverick 60 and in the sideboard he's got like multiple copies of chalice of the void and choke 
like three copies. Choke, I think, is just an. Brian's like making a very sexual motion right now, and he's just like cackling. Whoa. Um, but no, I think I think one of the reasons why Maverick is like just like really well positioned in the format right now is because it does have access to a card like Choke, which is basically lights out against so many of these decks. Like I know Grixis doesn't even have like an answer in its in its color combination or a reasonable card outside of like Force of Will. Um, Miracles, I hate Choke so much. I hate it with a passion. Um, and even Delver decks, like, I mean, I don't know if you board and choke against Delver, but, like, it, it poses a problem. I'm surprised that you agree with me. When I wrote this, I was like, they're going to laugh no, at me. No, I, I think Maverick is very powerful. Um, I think Maverick, uh, not to bash Mr. D. Neely, uh, is likely just, there's something missing from the deck to me that makes it stand out more than a deck like death and taxes. Like it doesn't accomplish anything that death and taxes doesn't already do. Uh, I get that playing a package like green sun Zenith in your deck is super awesome because it allows a lot of versatility for certain matchups, but I don't know if that's enough of an edge to make it better than something like death and taxes. I'm not saying Maverick is bad. I just don't know what you gain by playing it over a deck like death and taxes. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. That, that's a good point. Um, you got some prison, the prison elements in like Gattic That's kind of frustrating. I think that the green sun package is, is more agency over your decisions. There's more flexibility in, in your, the both reactive and proactive nature of what you're doing with death and taxes. You're oftentimes stuck, um, with what's in your hand minus the recruiter stoneforge plan. But I will say this, and this is just a cute little segue into the next topic. And that is, I think the deck is good enough to, and I will see one copy of it in the in the top eight of Wait, spoilers. Okay, I'm looking. I'm looking at this for the first time. Interog, you copied like mo- most of my. Can I, can I be here. dead ass honest with you, Wilson? I literally, I, I made a point to like look away as I was making, or, or I tried my best. I, I I was very honest with my top eight predictions, and I think the, the what I put put there is generally uh, genuinely what I feel. And then I looked at yours, and I was like, wow, there's actually just like a lot of overlap. So I guess I'll just, since I've, you know, just completely gone into the topic, here's my pick for the top eight in uh, Grand Prix Niagara Falls. I expect one blue-white blade list, one blue-white miracles list, one blue-red Delver list, a copy of Grixis Delver, mono-red Stompy, Sneak and Show, Maverick, and Death and Taxes. And I will say, I do think that the, the format is, is diverse enough where we will see eight unique decks or at least six or seven unique decks in the top eight. I'll go for eight. Cool. That was your prediction. Your picks are very reasonable and uh, pretty safe. I like it. So Maverick and Death and Taxes, I think, are the most, they represent a very similar axis. So picking those two to do well sort of says something. Also, you are picking two Delver decks here, which is reasonable. So 25% of the top eight. You think Delver's still good enough to to be taking home a, a large portion. Yeah, of every that. time I tell myself Delver's not going to top eight a Grand Prix, like in, in Shizuoka last year, I was like, Delver's kind of phasing out. It's not doing so good. And then bam, like somebody made top eight with the deck, with the deck, even with Stoneblade too. So are you the Miracles player in your list? If I say yes, then I'm jinxing myself. So I'm not going to say yes. But then if I don't say yes, it's just like I'm not, I'm, I'm basically doomed if I do, doomed if I don't. So that's okay. You don't have to say anything. I will go ahead and jinx it for you. So I put one miracles in the top eight because I am going to predict the Anarog top eights. Oh my event. God. So let's go through my, my list here. 
We have one Golgari deaths, which I guess is the you, the terminology used for it these days. Two mono red Stompy, one blue red Delver, one Miracles. That's Anarog. One the Epic Storm. That's Bryant. One Maverick and one Death and Taxes. So I think that the most interesting part of my predictions is that I'm calling that both of you top eight this event. Um, I'm calling that Bryant is going to beat Anarog in the top eight, and it's going to have something to do with his better tournament preparation, whether it be he is more hydrated or Anarog has a ripped sleeve and it makes him so OCD that he can't pay attention to the match very well. Uh, but in general, you know, I think these are somewhat safe predictions. Uh, actually, no, let's be, let's be real. I think you guys have safer predictions than me. I just sort of went, got a little ballsy and, and wanted to put my, my chips in your baskets. And also, I think Mono Red Stompy, it's sort of crazy to think that it would do this well to have two copies in the top eight, but I'm going for mm. it. Interesting. Brian, what are your eight decks? I have two copies of Blue White Stoneblade. I think there's going to be a lot of it, and it's primed to shred our, the current metagame. Uh, I don't think there's going to be a lot of miracles, and because of that, I think Stoneblade is going to just... In the Stoneblade versus Miracles matchup, I think Stoneblade is not favored. It's probably like 40%, and but I do think Stoneblade's more favored against the rest of the field. So without Miracles being in the field, I think Stoneblade is going to beat the decks like Death and Taxes, Mono Red Stompy, all these other decks. So I th- I just think that Stoneblade's great. Uh, Sneak and Show, like I said, I think it's primed to do well based on the metagame. But I, do, I don't think there's going to be a lot of people playing it. I think there might be four copies in day two and two of them top eight. Uh, Blue Red Delver, I think it's going to be the, the most popular deck in the field. I think it's only going to put one in top eight. Uh, it's just like not as good as people think, and I think Light Up the Sage is a fad. Uh, Grixis Control, I think it's going to have very few copies in day two. I think one of them will top eight based on how good it is in the metagame. Uh, Mono Red Stompy slash Dragon Stompy. It's just a solid deck. It's proactive. It crushes. It, it is what it is. And then Golgari Depths. No Storm. Very few combo. I just don't think combo is poised to do well on this stage in the metagame. I guess you could count Sneak and Show as combo, but in my eyes, combo is like Lion's Eye Diamond, Dark Ritual, Shenanigans. Yeah, you mean that that type of combo. That makes sense. So, Bryant not betting on himself. Anarag, we're not sure. I am betting on both of you. And I'm not going to be attending this event. I don't know if that was clear wow. to all of our listeners or even you two, but I will not be there. So. We'll pour one out for you, Wilson. I mean, I'm just Thank not going to go that. in an act of valiant protest. You could you can play some uh, some pinball and reach the Valinor wizard mode for me. In I'll my try mind. my best. I'll, I'll do it in my dreams. <clears throat> so, um, I don't know. I don't have any anything else to talk about. Do you guys Do you guys have any more? Well, how about that Game of Thrones episode? I was just say like, what What do you got? It wasn't that crazy. All that stuff that happened on Game of Thrones. Oh yeah, I can't believe they kidding. killed John Stark again. Wait, what? <laughs> so for for our listeners, that is uh, coming up. We're recording right before the Game of Thrones episode. By the by, the time you're listening to this, you will have seen it, but we have not seen it yet. So whatever Bryant just said, and I'm just like totally like erasing it from my memory. Uh, it was not real, right? John is going to uh, make babies with his aunt once again. Oh my goodness! Well, I, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, definitely, definitely, definitely. Um, well, on that note, then. <laughs> 
Thank you for listening to uh, the Eternal Glory Podcast, sponsored by theepicstorm.com and Cardboard Live. See ya!